We live in a world where the pace of technology is accelerating rapidly. And even though the world is changing so rapidly, our businesses are still using strategies and techniques used to run factory floors. Today I'm talking with Ben Ford from Commando Dev. We're going to talk about how strategies used in the military to tackle complex environments can be used to help software businesses tackle the complexity of the real world. Let's jump into the conversation. So Ben, tell me about Commando Dev. How did that start? Hey James, uh, thanks for having me. So my background before I was in tech was uh, I spent four years in the military in the, in the Royal Marine Commandos, uh, which is actually where I started teaching myself the basics of Python. Um, and for, the long, for a long time after I left, you know, I figured that my time in the Marines was just a fun diversion from my 20s. Um, and you know, now, I'm a, now I'm a fully fledged software developer, I don't need to worry about, you know, or, you know that, that was a separate part of my life. And it wasn't until you know, I started building my own teams, um, leading people, trying to align with you know, increasingly accelerating businesses that um, I started to realize that there's some valuable communication sort of hacks and techniques learned back in the military. So over the course of you know, a few years of research on, on better teams and better communications, I always ended up coming back to you know, concepts from the military that I'm sure we'll dig into shortly. Um, so, you know, I, I put the two parts of my life back, back together in a sense. So commando development, um, and we, you know, we can dig into the connotations of what commando development means there's, there's several different sort of connotations for what that means to different size companies. Yeah. So it sounds like you're taking these skills that you thought were totally separate and realize that, Hey, I can, I can combine these into something totally unique. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. So, so I think there are some there are obviously lots of people taking, you know, their experiences in the military and, and applying them to civilian context. The difference really with, with me is that I'm, I'm, I'm kind of not doing that. I, I come from a very sort of civilian context and I've just happened to have this other little set of experience that, that I think is useful. So I'm kind of, I'm almost taking a principles first approach. So from a, you know, from a programmer's point of view, I'm trying to extract the right abstractions and then I'm trying to reapply those to to the, the civilian context. And actually, you know, we can dig into this, I'm sure. But, um, you know, I, I increasingly think that fast moving tech environments are much more like um, they're much more like combat zones than factories. And most of our best practice seems to come from, you know, optimizing factories and, you know, that kind of school of mm -hmm. thought. And I, I am increasingly thinking that it's a less and less of a good fit. Tell me a little bit about um, those principles. Sure. So. So, I mean, contextually, you know, the military is um, continually operating in chaos, right? You, you go in, you, you are using force to do something that another large body of people does not want you to do, and that inherently creates chaos. So over, over the centuries of doing that, the military is emergent behaviors have come up in the military, which are a good fit for operating in chaos. In the 70s, 80s, and 90s, a chap called John Boyd, who was a US Air Force pilot, began to go back over the literature and, and bring in a whole bunch of branches of science and social sciences. And the, the concept that he came up with was eventually, after sort of 30 years of iteration and, and refinement, the OODA loop. Um, and that, for me, that's my kind of, you know, that's my fundamental abstraction for all of this stuff. It's where, it's where I go when I need to explain how entities interact with their environment. For those not familiar with the OODA loop, the, the OODA loop is an acronym for uh, observe, orient, decide, and act. And traditionally, when you learn it from an article online, you might see a nice diagram with a, a big circle. 
but what I learned from Ben is that the OODA loop is not really a loop. And that, that kind of, that, that threw me for a loop. And suddenly the OODA loop, you realize how much more depth there is to that concept. Yeah, 100%. So I, I have started to think of the OODA loop as much more of a hierarchy. So if you, I mean, there is, there is a loop in there, but it's kind of like, a, you know, if you consider a, um, an entity that is operating in its environment, it has a boundary and it has an inside and an outside. And it has a means to exchange information and energy with its environment. And the, the mechanism of that exchange is increasingly how I think the OODA loop is really set up. That's what it describes. So you have observations, which are things that you observe about your environment. Those feed into your orientation, which is your, your mental models, your view of the world, your understanding of the state of both you and, and the things that are around you. And then you have a decision point and an action. And <clears throat> you can really, really kind of consider those as the inward, the inward flow of energy and the outward flow of energy. So the inward flow of energy is observation orientation. And then the outward flow of energy is, is an intention and a decision to, to take an action. And then that feeds into your observation about how, how well did that action stick. So it's comprised of multiple different OODA loops at every single stage of that. So, you know, if you're a company, you know, let's say you're a tech startup, your sort of macro organizational size OODA loop is, you know, the macroeconomic conditions, your mission, your purpose, the things that you are aiming to do in the world. But all of your people that, that comprise your organization, they all have their own kind of OODA loop. So, you know, a programmer who's working with a, with a compiler or, or, you know, doing, doing a kind of release cycle for his software, that's a separate kind of OODA loop. And they're all fractally composed together until you get this kind of whirling melee of, of interacting entities that, that form the kind of the whole. Well, yeah. I mean, we've all been in a situation where you're on a, you're on a small team who seemingly doesn't have any contact with the outside world and, and suddenly you're making all sorts of weird decisions that all the, maybe all the programmers are, are like, what is going on? And, and no one is aligned and it just feels crazy. You know, what, what's one way that an organization can make sure that they're, they're staying in contact with the external as they go through their, their OODA loop, their OODA hierarchies? So that's a, that's a great observation. And yeah, you're right. That happens all the time. <clears throat> in fact, um, so the OODA loop obviously was born of combat and what, what Boyd, so Boyd, Boyd was a fighter pilot in the 1950s. He became an instructor at Top Gun. And when he was at Top Gun, he used to be able to, he used to have a bet that he could beat anyone in 40 seconds and he never lost apparently. Um, so the, so the legend goes and his process of winning is what he calls getting inside the OODA loop. Now that's, you know, if you've, if you've read anything about the OODA loop and you've read anything about one of these kind of surface levels article, level articles, that's commonly represented or explained as just going faster, right? You just, you just tighten up your loop, you go faster than everyone else. But there's actually a lot more to it than that. What you want to do when, when you consider getting inside somebody's OODA loop, it's actually breaking their orientation. You're actually causing them to continually drift away from the, the the reality, and the way you do that is by I increasingly believe the way you do that is by walling off their observations and their and their actions by forcing them to jump between orientation and decision. So you, you either overwhelm overwhelm them with too many observations that they can't react to, or you you just have them make decisions that they can't enact. So they're continually oh try this try that try that, but nothing ever sticks. And if you think about a fast moving tech company, that's actually sometimes what they do to themselves, right? They, 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 they grow from a small single, you know, single unit, <clears throat> say five, five to eight people, where everyone's in contact and everyone knows what's going on because there's this kind of process of osmosis. But then what happens is they grow 
there's more communication overhead between those people, but they're still kind of, they're still anchored on the amount that they used to be able to deliver or the speed with which they used to be able to react when they were a small team. So they continue to try and do that. They continue to, to take on too much stuff. They, they don't reorientate on prioritizing the highest things and they try and do everything, which means that they end up basically, I mean, I, I've experienced this several times in tech companies. They end up really sub-optimizing their ability to deliver because they're continually doing this kind of bouncing back and forth of, you know, working on too many things and never pushing anything through. Yeah. Um, and that essentially is them building up entropy within their system. And it's, it, you know, it's a chaotic place to be and it's really frustrating, which is one of the reasons why I want to do what I want to do is to help get through that kind of friction. Yeah. I mean, so you're seeing all this friction in programming spaces and, you know, <clears throat> what, what made you decide to take that information and, and turn it into a course? So it's really a couple of things, really. So one is, one is the, the pace of change is definitely not getting any slower, right? I, I've heard many people refer to, you know, the exponentialization of the tech environment, right? You've yeah. got... It's continually, it's a naturally accelerating process because the things that come before get turned into things that other people can use. I was chatting with someone earlier today who was saying, you know, in the, in the early 2000s, when you, were, when you were taking VC money, a good half of that was just to build your website, to sell your stuff. Yeah. Right. That is a completely trivial. Like if you went to a VC now and said, hey, I, I need any money at all and more than a week to build a website, they would tell you to get the hell out of their office, right? Right. So. So that, that continual, you know, packaging up and, and standardizing of, of building blocks means that you can now build things exponentially quicker, which then form the next, you know, standing on the shoulders of ever taller giants, if you like. So that, that means that our, the way we communicate and the way we orientate needs to constantly change to match that changing external environment. But the problem is that much of our kind of um, agile software development and our our kind of cultural teachings come from kind of the opposite environment of big companies that have built up a big legacy and they need to get more efficient. So the reason that I put this into a course is because, you know, I think people, people need to understand these fundamental concepts of the OODA loop, um, situational awareness, and then the thing that lets you communicate properly in, in a chaotic environment, which is the military kind of doctrine of mission command. And, you know, I figured, well, you know, if more people need to know this, it's, better for me be, to be able to deliver that without having to sort of you know sit there and explain it to them so I, I'll, I'll make a course to to try and share that with as many people as I can yeah for sure what's been like the the biggest challenge when putting together this course because it, it feels like there's there's so many ideas and fundamental concepts that you're trying to convey in, in one in one course without being there um, how is how has that gone yeah I mean that, that has been a very difficult one actually um so you know I started I had a good understanding of the, the fundamentals that I think people need to understand. And I think they provide value on their own, right? They're, they're useful, especially if you're talking to technical people that like thinking in terms of abstractions, they're useful standalone. <clears throat> biggest challenge, biggest challenge for me in the course, which I haven't actually fully fixed yet because, you know, things have come up and, and work's got in the way is moving from that abstract kind of fundamental principles to giving people concrete, concrete things they can use without turning that into like a packaged solution. You know, what I don't want to become is, you know, the scrum of communication or something right. that you know, this, this myth that you've got some kind of pre-existing set of techniques that because it worked once, one time, you know, 10 years ago in a company and it did well, 
that it's the right solution for everyone. So it's a real, and I think this is a, a thing that indie consultants in general struggle with, not just course providers, is balancing that kind of abstract, fundamental, underlying level with concrete, concrete, specific techniques and tools that you can use. And that, that's something that I'm still kind of grappling with. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's, it's, it's easy for, for you as the, as the consultant or as the course creator, because you have all the knowledge in your head to, to stay at this level of abstraction. But yeah, being able to, to bring it down to a real world example is, is really, it's, it's tough, but that, that's, I feel like such an important part of, of learning and of, of teaching. Uh, yeah, so I just I was just going to make the observation that I think possibly that's one reason why courses are tending to trend towards um, more participatory than than just a standard kind of digital product. Mm-hmm. I think if you look at you know Rite of Passage and Building a Second Brain and uh, Ali's new course about you know becoming a successful YouTuber, there's there's obviously the principles in there, but they're they're able to carve out that space and charge a high enough price point that they can get people to practice as well. And you know that that. Um, that really rings true with how we used to learn in the military right it's not it's not sit in a classroom and learn concepts it's go out and do the thing and then iterate and and get better like i never even heard of the uda loop when i was in the military but everything that we did on a tactical level was was really you know encompassing that that concept yeah it's interesting it's interesting you note that that sort of trend in in online courses because that's what i'm seeing as well have you thought about adding a, a, participa- a participatory sort of aspect of your class? Yeah, I think there's a couple of there's a couple of ways I could go. Um, I think I could do the kind of group coaching, you know, get get a bunch of founders of companies at a certain growth point. Um, you know, there are natural what I call social inflection points that that companies tend to go through just as a function of how communication networks need to change, and they're around sort of you know fifteen to twenty, thirty to fifty. And then sort of 100 to 150. So I could certainly build something specific to those organization sizes. Or the other option would be to, to build something which is a more targeted intervention with the, with the kind of the digital content of the course as, as leverage to deliver the, the concepts and then go in and work with company in a, like a, in a workshop to embed the concepts. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, you know, that's definitely something that I want to get to at some point, yeah. Yeah, that, that could be, I could imagine, you know, a company who's like at one of those inflection points going, hey, like, can we show your show our employees your course and then have you come in and, and talk about how to specifically implement these these ideas for our company specifically? I think that would be really cool. I mean, the, the other option, which I, I think, you know, that there's probably multiple different options that are suitable for different different folks. But um, I think for the sort of slightly bigger end of of company on that scale the sort of you know 80 80 plus um i think it actually would make sense for me to go in as more of a partner with with people with different skills like i think there's so many different things that need to change i think I, i've heard i can't remember who said it but you know you essentially need to rebuild how you do things multiple times along the journey of growth of a company and there's so many different things that need to happen that aren't really in my kind of domain of expertise you know how you hire needs to change how you onboard needs to change, probably how you do marketing and, and you know, manage that kind of growth OODA loop. I mean, it's, it's still an OODA loop, but it's not, it's not my OODA loop, you know, it's not the one yeah. that I'm that familiar with. So I think, I don't know, I, th- I think what we're going to see over, over the next few years is, is an ecosystem of, of people that can come and deliver a kind of joined up approach of, of helping companies sort of almost pick you know, I'm going completely against what I said earlier, but pick kind of 
things that work off the shelf as a starting point. And where I where I see I would fit into that is is the OODA loop is the like the meta process that you have underlying all of this stuff that allows you to have a systems view of your whole business and make the right tweaks for for things to work together. I mean, so that you know the the OODA loop and John Boyd's ideas have been around for you know decades now, but I imagine that there has been shifts in in both military thinking and in management thinking. What kind of kind of shifts have you seen there um hmm. or lack thereof well yeah i mean <laughs> so there's there's both going on concurrently i guess so um you know when i when i joined the military you know in you know mid sort of 20 years ago i was still carrying an analog radio believe it or not yeah. um my training was still fundamentally about fighting the cold war so it was all about, you know, NVC, nuclear, biological and chemical warfare defense. It was about digging trenches. It was about, you know, la- large scale land warfare in Europe, essentially, even though I was you know, part of the commandos. But, you know, if you look at the, the you know, the commandos were born in, in the Second World War as part of the special operations executive to wage asymmetrical warfare. So it's somewhat ironic that the, the wars that have bogged the West down in the last 20 years have been asymmetrical warfare where we yeah. were on the... Uh, on the receiving end. <clears throat> so, you know, there's definitely been a huge shift in how those wars are prosecuted and fought. You know, Team of Teams is a fantastic book that I always recommend, which tells tells the story of how a, a whole organization had to be reorientated to combat an enemy that was completely different to what they expected. And I mean, in, in, in business terms, I mean, you, you can't even recognize it nowadays. Like, the, you know, to my point earlier, when I, when I first moved into professional programming in you know, the late, um, like 2008 was when I, when I became my first professional programmer, you were still in the, in the days of, you know, renting or buying a server, finding space in a data center, setting up routers, all this, all this kind of stuff that you had to do before you could even think about starting to write code and, you know, and deployment and all that, all that stuff. And now, you know, now we're at the point where you don't even have to write code for a whole bunch of of stuff in your business like the automation platforms that i've been using over the last couple of weeks absolutely mind-blowing what you can put together with those and not even have to have an expensive programmer writing code so this this kind of accelerating accelerating frontier of change means that you know niches are now more addressable companies that built something 10 years ago are now much more quickly vulnerable to newcomers who want to want to take a chunk out of their business legacy becomes legacy much more quickly and, you know and in the midst of this we've still got several industries that haven't adopted that pace of change at all so i you know i can't see anything other than absolute carnage in in the next um, few years or decades <laughs> yeah it's interesting you know we've technology changes so fast and yet our, our sort of management solutions like you said a lot of them are just derived from working on a factory line and even even things that they claim to you know go through the OODA loop faster like like agile a lot of the the agile techniques and and the things that are are still around are you know they're a decade old and in in technology terms that's ancient history right yep so it's crazy that you know we're still using these off the shelf cookie cutter techniques you know sort of yeah. blindly cargo culting them and hoping that they'll work as as the company grows it's 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 sort of crazy that there aren't more people like you talking about these first principles ideas and learning how to apply them to to business yeah, I think I think there's something there's something underlying that I just want to pick on uh, pick up on. The reason the reason I think that we're sort of semi stuck in the old ways is because with the increasing pace of change, people get busier. You know, people you know naturally feel like their hair's on fire in, in most mm-hmm. startups. 
So the only thing that really gets people's attention is something that's simple, right? Something that's simple to explain. The problem is that the, the inherent causes of the problems that we face are complexity. They are, you know, an increasingly networked and connected world. And that really defies simple solutions that defy, that means that you have to, you have to shift your focus from thinking about individuals and, and things, and you have to really expand your, your awareness to consider like second, third order effects. You have to consider the connections between things. And like, that's a very different mental place to be than focusing hundred percent on delivering the, the thing that your software is, your, your software startup or your, you know, just general startup is there to do. So there's this tension of, you know, having to have focus on delivering what you're delivering, but then there's all this incidental complexity, which is just getting worse and worse and becoming more and more of a problem mm-hmm. more and more quickly. And I think, you know, the, the, the companies that I think are successful that I look up to in this space, you know, people like, um, you know, Ryan Peterson at Flexport, the Ubers and Airbnbs of the world, the ones that are making platform plays now, they recognize that they're in this complexity and somehow they're managing to apply, you know, simple principles to allow emergent behavior. And that requires a very, very different mindset. If you're a, you know, if you're a developer on a small team for a company that's suddenly found themselves growing, how would you go about making those shifts from within? Is that even possible? Yeah, I think it is. Like there's a, there's a the concept that I learned from, um, from the guys at Red Team Thinking. Uh, Red Team Thinking, we could maybe talk about another time. But the, the advice that they have to people in that context is that no matter how chaotic things are no matter how crazy things are there's always a locus of control that you have right there's always and they call it my five percent you know if if you're a software developer it depends i mean very much obviously very contextual but if if your problem is delivery like if your problem is that you're you've picked up too much tech debt um, and you can't deliver anymore then the solution to that is to spend all your is to identify the highest priority thing to fix and and start to fix that and, you know, you might need to get some buy-in from, from people and you, you, you might need to get some top cover and you might need to be persuasive and argue with the business that, and, you know, the, the separation between tech and the business is another thing we could get into perhaps. But, you know, if you are in that kind of separate camp, then you have to make the argument to the business that if you keep doing what you, you've always done, you'll get what you've always got and it's getting worse. Because, you know, you, it's tech debt is uh, tech debt's like culture debt, right? It just doesn't go away on its own. It has to have some sustained attention to, to deal with. And the other, the other thing that I would suggest to not just developers, but also leaders is to give people the gift of context, right? The, our agile software mindset is that, you know, the backlog is created by, by people that aren't doing the work sometimes in, in, you know, less than ideal cases. And then this kind of phrase of you're not going to need it is encouraging people to just kind of focus on the, the thing that's in front of them. And that doesn't work in complex environments where you have to make trade-offs. So you, you have to give, you know, I, I would say if I had a choice between like the agile methodology or something like shape up from Basecamp, um, I think base, the, the Basecamp methodology is a far, far better choice for dealing with complex circumstances where you have to make trade-offs because it gives people context, the context within which a bet is being made and the boundaries within which decision-making is decision-making can be sort of pushed down. And that's exactly what you need to operate in complex circumstances, exactly how the military does it. Context is key. You know, the, the big difference there is that, that whoever's doing the shaping is, is passing the context to the developers. So they, they understand what the point of what they're working on is. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and also the, the shaping is, is bounded. It's not, 
trying to figure out everything up front. It's a, I think it takes a lot of experience. And I think, you know, having spoken to, I did a call with a, another ex Royal Marine friend of mine who is now a product head of product and they use shape up and, you know, it, it will take you probably two or three iterations of that to get that heuristic of shaped enough to be the right constraints without being overwhelming or prescriptive because, you know, developers are at least as important in the evolution of a, of a product or a, a, an ecosystem as, as, a, as anyone else. In fact, more so because they, they understand the tooling, right? They understand what's possible. Yeah. Earlier you touched on this, this separation of business and tech in a lot of companies. Can you, you know, can you say more to that? Yeah. So I, I think um, <clears throat> I'll, I'll actually, this is a, a new line of thinking I've been pursuing in the last couple of weeks. I'm, I'm going to sort of ask you to push back on it a little bit. Yeah, let's hear it. So, so I think that a team, a team that's aiming to, to deliver an MVP, you know, is probably fairly small. Um, the MVP is very focused and the, the focus is on proving out that MVP to the extent of all, all else. So, you know, you'll likely rack up a bit of tech debt. You'll likely um, cut some corners and you'll likely, you know, just do the easiest thing that works. But that's, you know, that's the kind of the right heuristics to apply at that stage. Yeah. The next, the next sort of stage of evolution from, from that sort of early stage teams up to sort of 50 odd people is about putting the rest of the loops in place around the business that need to happen. So that's, you know, hiring, that's partnerships, that's marketing, that's sales and it's product and, and getting, getting an engineering team up and running that, that can deliver. Right. And, and I think, I think the pressure at those, at that point is that it's, it's more efficient and this is you know it's a critical kind of survival piece to get there right you have to get a fully working system up and running it's more efficient at that stage to allow those things to become silos right marketing can just go off and you know figure out how to build the growth loop and, and yeah. you know customer success can figure out how to build that relationship with customers and the development team can figure out how to get their ci cd set up and you know their delivery and, and all of these things and you know that sort of naturally creates silos and then you end up with going going into this kind of 50 to you know however big that company gets and it's at that point where you need to create systems and those systems need to cross the boundaries of the silos and it's that point that it's the efficiency of the whole system that now starts to matter a lot more than the efficiency or or the, the creation of the individual pieces of that ecosystem and i think that's where that's where this kind of split between business and other functions starts to be uh, sorry business and, and tech starts to become problematic because now you need to break down all of those silos and build you know cross-functional teams or you need to have um, take some ideas from team topologies and, and build something that is a holistic sustainable system for growth so that's that, that's the kind of broadly the, the sort of the three phases i think and they're, they're they're all aimed at different things necessarily and i think it's those transition points that I see where the, where the problems come. What do you think? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's definitely those transition points that are the, the difficult part for a business. And then, like you said, it's like, okay, so you're going from this tiny team to something like 50 people. You, you need to do that siloing. Otherwise people are going to get overwhelmed and you're not going to be able to ship. I'm just, I'm wondering, this is totally pie in the sky, but I'm wondering if there's a, a process where a company could go through from that small team to that, you know, that larger systems network without siloing. Cause I think the biggest danger is this, the siloing will want to stay siloed because you know, it, it's very hard to, to implement these, these interlinking systems. Yeah. So that's actually really a really good thing to noodle on a bit. Um, 
yes i think i think it's possible um i think if you if you lived in a world where there was a kind of acceptably good way of doing the various different functions and you could just implement those things so you know there are a number of well you know courses for want of a better word that that sort of teach you about growth hacking or you know how to how to build a sustainable startup there's the great CEO within. There's um, traction by Gina Whitman. There's you know there's a whole bunch of there's a whole bunch of best practices. Are really the wrong phrase here. It's it's kind of guidelines, right? It's like basic building blocks that aren't necessarily the, the best way to do it, but they're good enough for a small yeah. company. Yeah. They're they're a good starting point. Yeah. So I think if you if you were pretty ruthless about getting to good enough in those areas, that might free up enough of your bandwidth to ensure that the links are still happening. Um, because you know you, you have to kind of you have to keep the endpoint in mind. Because yes, it's important that you don't die along the journey. But equally, people are all all companies are doing this better and better now. So if you're in a cohort of of you know zero to one type companies aiming for an aiming for an outcome, if you kind of you know shit in your own bed on on the way to getting to something sustainable, and another company has got to the same point as you are, and they've made less of a mess. Well, they're going to clean up, right? Yeah. They are going to be operating within, within, you know, more, more efficiently, more effectively than you are. And if it's a competition, well, they'll win. Yeah. It's like, you know, the, the siloing is done because it's more efficient. So like, like you said, if you're, if you're competing with another company and they're doing the siloing, you're just going to lose before you even get to that, that larger scale. Yeah, I mean, unless unless you can accrue some of the benefits of the siloing without falling into that trap. Like if you if you know that okay, siloing is a useful tool for now, but you know, in six months we're going to be at you know fifty people and we need to have X, Y, and Z. You can allow the you can allow the efficiencies to accrue, but still keep an eye on where you need to be, and you know start thinking about the team topologies that you'll actually need, so that you know you when when that siloing is no longer driving progress you can sort of roll it back or, or move it to where it needs to be yeah. but that's obviously a lot easier than waiting until it's causing pain yeah so if you know if you have this if you have this mission plan where everyone is on board with hey we're siloing for now but in six months or maybe a year we're going to be changing that up again and everyone understands what's going on you can avoid that that situation where everyone is siloed and they don't want to unsilo right yeah and, and yeah. you could also avoid the overhead of of every other meeting being about the pain of siloing <laughs> because you know i've i've figured the groundhog day meeting in any kind of tech startup is oh what about our culture what about the way we do things and yeah. you know when when the half of every single meeting is about the friction that you're experiencing because you don't have this kind of story or context about where it is you're going i mean you're just wasting a load of time mm -hmm. right if 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 it's like yeah we know it's painful but you know we we have we know it's going to be like this. We knew it was going to be like this. We planned for this. We just need to get through this period until we're X or Y, or we've, we've achieved the outcome. And then, and then we'll, you know, park it for now and just sort of suck it up. I think that that both acknowledges, acknowledges the dysfunction, which there's always going to be in, in a startup. You never going to have everything perfect, yeah. but it recognizes that there are, you know, bigger priorities right now that need to be focused on. That leads us to your third principle, which is this mission command, right? Mm -hmm. How does a company maintain that, that unified mission so that everyone knows what direction they're heading? So just to sort of explain what, what mission command is. So mission, mission command is what 
we we've come to call in the west the, the kind of the blitzkrieg tactics that the, the german military came up with in the second world war and there are sort of three fundamental kind of building blocks in my view i'm not the expert on mission command if you want to if you want to become an expert on mission command there's a chap called don van der griff who was so passionate about learning this stuff that he actually taught himself german to go and like read the original um, german literature um, and he's he's written a book called adopting mission command that being said um in the tech context that so that there are sort of three kind of overlapping building blocks in my view and the 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 aim of implementing something like mission command is to have intuition and fluency in your operations so in the full ooda loop diagram there are two very very important lines which are called implicit guidance and control and those are essentially lines of intuition that you know your material so well that you skip over decision and you just fluidly do the next action. So, you know, you're jumping engine, straight from observation to action because you have this intuition built up. It's, I mean, it still it skips through orientation, but you know, if we think of the the hierarchy idea with orientation in the middle, things that you're familiar with are kind of like a, and you've got something that can go right into the gravity well and back out, or it's something that just skips off and and just deflects a little bit. So if, if you if you have an observation that you are familiar with, let's say you know I'm I'm coding away and I have a I've I've skipped a I've skipped a character somewhere and I get a compilation error that indicates that I've misspelled something and I, mm -hmm. my editor tells me where it is and I look at it and I'm like oh yeah I missed a word I missed a letter stick it in all good right I don't need to stop the world and and sort of rethink about everything it's just a, a an immediate intuitive I know this I've got this I I fix it. You know, counter that with something that's like, you know, you're using a new library, you've never seen it, you've never used it before, you don't know the API, every single thing that kind of falls in your path is like, is that me or is that, you know, the library or is it like I've, I've you know, misconfigured it? And it's a much slower process where you're continually going deeper into orientation as you figure things out. So the aim, the aim for a, for a business or for a company is to have systems and processes that support that intuitive operation as much as possible so the building blocks of that in my view are trust right you have to have trust psychological safety so that so that the, the communication flows fluidly right and trust is you trust each other you trust the leadership to know that they've made the right decisions and the leadership trust the people that that are under them to deliver right so that they they're you know they're trusting in their ability trust then then allows alignment to to uh, to come about and alignment allows that sort of fluency to to start happening right you you the more the more you're aligned the more leadership can let go of control and they can trust people to operate within the boundaries that they've been set and give them the freedom to do that yeah. which means that there's you know less less overhead incurred by people asking what they should do there's more more of that context so that when things go wrong or, you know, when things become unexpected, people can operate within their own intuition to, to solve those problems. And the overall result of that is a, is a faster moving, more fluid, more agile, you know, real agile business. Awesome. And so mission, mission command is called by, uh, Don calls it the doctrine of empowerment, right? So it's the, it's the communication structures and systems that you put in place so that you have that emergent trust alignment and intuition. And when all of your teams have this, this sense of trust and this empowerment that, Hey, like I, I know what I'm doing and I have the power to do it without asking 10 people, you're allowed to move faster. You're not spending as much time spinning your wheels in that decision. The team can grow. That's awesome.
Yeah. And, and, and that's, you know, that's what it feels like. Like before, uh, before I was in the military, uh, I used to do a bit of security work in, in some nasty nightclubs with um, my, my brother and um, our, our, our best friend, you know, we were like, like a little trio and we built up this kind of mutual, we, we had this kind of feeling within our team of the, the pub that we were working on. Like one of us would be up on the balcony sort of watching over the other two. And we developed, like, we didn't even need to use our radios in the end. We had these little earpieces in, but we didn't need to use our radios because we would walk through the pub. We, we would have such a connection with each other that we would just be able to go like that. And at that small nod, we had enough shared context and enough kind of knowledge of that environment and familiarity that that nod was enough for the other two to know, oh yeah, he's talking about that guy over there with a the, with the tattoo on his neck who's being an, being an idiot who's about to get through, who's going to need to be thrown out soon. Yeah. And it's that kind of, that's what you're aiming for. That's kind of group flow, which is, you know, one step beyond individual flow. Yeah. That kind of group flow is, is so incredible and it's such a human thing and something that I feel very few people have access to nowadays. Yeah. And it's, it's a real shame. You know, we, we talk about procrastination a lot and about productivity and so much of it is because we don't have the, the systems in place to enable this kind of group flow. And if we did, you wouldn't have to worry about which task manager is better than the other. It would just be, you know, a head nod to uh, your coworker or, you know, maybe a, yeah. a short Slack message. But yeah. it's a shame that, yeah, we, yeah we, we spend so much time thinking about these different <clears throat> tools instead of thinking about how can we set up, how can we enable this, this group flow to emerge? Yeah, and, and that's, that's exactly the right word. It is emergent, right? And, it's, and it's, not, it's not something that you can cause to emerge just by thinking about people, the individuals. I mean, it's, it's really about the system. And, you know, there's this kind of, I don't know, very prevalent and quite peculiar kind of Western proclivity with thinking about individuals and being very kind of individual oriented mm-hmm. when actually all of the good things that come out of a team are all about the interaction between the people. Right? Yeah, obviously, individual skill is important. You can't just take somebody and plonk them down if they don't know what they're doing. But that kind of empowerment and, and um, force multiplication is really all about the system. It's not about the individuals. Yeah, we often talk about oh, like hiring rock star engineers or or ten x engineers. And yeah, what if what if your team was set up so that everyone was ten xing the whole group? You know, yeah, that would have so much more leverage than just you know one one rock star siloed off in a yeah. in an office by himself. Yeah, hundred percent. And actually, you know, in order to have that kind of group cohesion, you actually need a mix of different people. Yeah, right. So, actually spending all of your time focusing on hiring a bunch of individual 10x engineers you know it's like it's like spending millions of pounds in in soccer in in the uk not that i'm a fan of soccer but you know it's a good analogy spending millions and millions of pounds on individual players and you know never uh, never training them together just then and you know and then you have the kind of the story of moneyball uh, I think it was Moneyball, right? The story about the guy who took a really algorithmic view of basketball. He bought loads of really cheap players. He just put yeah. them in the right system. Yeah. Um, and I think I think that's a we we are very very over-indexed, especially in the tech industry, on you know smart individuals or what we need. And actually, really, what we need much more of is better teams, better mm-hmm. systems. Yeah, I totally agree. I've seen very very smart individuals who just can't contribute because the team dynamics are so messed up. It's it's really a shame. Yeah. And, and, you know, sometimes like, you know, another lesson from red team thinking, sometimes you'll have a, a, a junior member of a team that if the, if the psychological safety is there, 
they'll spot the thing that the the, the senior guys have missed because they're new, right? They're, mm -hmm. they're, the guys are just like, oh yeah, well, you know, I know this back of my hand. And the junior person might be coming in with a different set of experience and a different set of perceptual filters. And they'll say, oh yeah, but what about that? And if the culture is for the juniors to say, you know, shut up, pad one, you know, I'm, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the guy. Well, A, they'll stop bothering. Yeah. And B, you'll miss this kind of, you'll miss this kind of dynamic. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that psychological safety is so huge. I found in, you know, in, in, in online courses as well, if you have a big group and they're all talking, but you don't have that psychological safety, people aren't going to learn as fast. Um, people aren't going to ask questions because they think, oh, it's maybe I'll be seen as stupid if I ask that question. And yeah. you see this in, in companies that are too siloed off as well. It's like the sales might have a good point about the direction that uh, your programmers are going, but if they're, they don't feel safe to raise those concerns because the, there's all this political infighting, you can't, you can't operate efficiently. You're going to yeah. miss something huge. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the biggest takeaways for me from um, General McChrystal's book, Team of Teams right? You know, you've got this, there's this perception that the military is all about kind of top-down control. And, you know, you just tell people to do it and they go and do it because they've been trained and, you know, all this stuff. And actually like towards the middle of the book, or maybe, maybe it might've been in the follow-up book. I can't remember, but you know, the, the authors made the really strong point that, look, we had to continually tell people it was okay to, to try stuff and fail because even, you know, almost especially in the military with this very hierarchical, kind of thing being being told that it's okay to to have a differing opinion is you know you, you have to tell people that they're safe to do that and that's mm -hmm. you know hard and hairy ass special forces operators right if they need psychological safety pretty much fair to say that everyone does for sure well, well we're coming up on the end of the hour here i want to be cognizant of time where can people find you and your course so i'm commando dev pretty much everywhere so i'm i'm at commando dev on twitter mm -hmm. Uh, my website is commando.dev. My course lives at, um, the course is called Communicate to Operate. Uh, it's pinned in my Twitter profile. Um, and, you know, I, I just want to say, like, I love, like, talking about this. I think Twitter is like my, I was thinking about this earlier. Twitter is like my, um, my sensory mechanism. Like, I love the, the serendipitous kind of connections that you make. Um, so I'm always open for anyone to kind of, ping me and say you know i disagree with what you said or have you thought about this like love it just you know hit me up um and i think i'm going to start doing a few of these kind of longer form conversations because twitter's great for that kind of packetized discreet serendipitous contact but i think these kinds of conversations where you actually really dig deep and explore a concept are also really good so yeah. if anyone wants to have any of those conversations with me as well and I'm, I'm always uh, always up for that too Awesome. Yeah, I'll, I'll put a, all the links to Ben's Twitter and social media and website and course, um, either here or down below. Go check him out. Ben's awesome. And Ben, thank you so much for coming on and taking the time to chat with me. This has been fascinating. My pleasure, James. Anytime. Really good. Yeah. Okay. I'll see you around. Cheers. Cheers. Bye.